Good morning, everyone. Uh, our first case is in Ray J.R., and we'll hear from the appellant. Good morning. May it please the court, I'm Assistant Appellate Defender Wyatt Orsbin, and I represent J.R., the lead respondent, the six cases consolidated for hearing today. All six cases raise the same due process argument, and I'll be arguing that on behalf of all six respondents today. After me, Assistant Appellate Defender Katie Dickinson Schultz will be arguing uh, in Ray <clears throat> CG, and after that, Assistant Appellate Defender Candace Washington will be argue, arguing um, RSH. I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. All six respondents were involuntarily committed. That means they were confined against their will and forced to undergo medical treatment against their will. In the words of the Supreme Court, involuntary commitment is a massive curtailment of liberty and autonomy. And as a result, due process imposes certain procedural safeguards on the commitment process. The requirement at issue in these six cases is the district courts functioning as an impartial trial tribunal while presiding over adversarial commitment hearings. In Toomey, the Supreme Court set out the test for determining whether a trial judge acts impartially. The Supreme Court said that due process is violated any time or by any judicial procedure that would offer a possible, a possible temptation to the average person as a judge to forget the burden of proof or to not hold the balance nice, clear, and true between the parties. In sum, the court explained that on a practical level, due process is violated when a judge commingles the functions of advocacy and adjudicating, of presenting the case and appraising its weight. The district court judges in these cases failed Toomey's and Sung's test. They forgot to enforce the burden of proof and they failed to hold the burden nice, clear, and true between the respondents and the state. Is it your position that inherently this will be the case whenever a trial judge is presiding and there is no one representing the state's interest that inherently it doesn't matter how the questions are framed by the judge, the judge is going to be inherently the prosecutor as well as the impartial tribunal and that in and of itself violates due process? Well, uh, Your Honor, I think, it's, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it, I think it depends on the context of the proceeding. Uh, when the party with the burden of proof, when the prosecuting party fails to or elects to not present its case, that's, that's what triggers the problem in these cases. It's the trial court's response to the absence of a prosecuting party. So when, the, so when the trial judge, in the absence of the prosecuting party, when the trial judge asks all the questions that would satisfy the, the prosecuting party's burden of proof, 
That's when it goes too far. So but simply I, asking I, a question. I, hypothetically, let's say the, in this case, the uh, court called the case. Nobody showed up for the state. State looks at the hospital and says, you got anything to say? And that's the only thing that's said. Is that a due process violation? And the and then your hypothetical the witness, hypothetical, the, give, it gives the, whatever answer the witness gives, and that's it. So, in your hypothetical, the the the, the doctor for the the private uh, for the private the facility. private facility, you know, the, the sworn in, the court says you got anything to say, the doctor says whatever the doctor's got to say. <clears> ah, I understand. Box. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so, that, sorry, that, sorry, Ms. Starsman. <clears throat> no, I'm a little slow on the uptake. Yes, that that would be. That would be a due process violation okay. here, right? Because it's <clears throat> as open-ended as that question is, that question was designed to elicit the testimony or the presentation of evidence that would or not support commitment, right? Tell, right so we, so it's we, not we, we see these open-ended questions. It's tell me what, what you think I need to know about these cases. That, that's a due process violation. Okay. So any question, if it's the only question that's asked, would be a due process violation as you see it? No, not any question. Any question that elicits I mean, I mean, the beyond, essential beyond what is your name? I mean, right. Okay. Any, any question that elicits the essential information. Right. They don't have to ask specifically, is this person mental? Right. You, you don't have to ask specifically the, the criteria under the statute for a commitment. Is this person mentally ill and are they dangerous to themselves or others? Right, that, that does happen in several of the cases. They do ask those targeted I mean, that, questions, that but anything. That tended to happen on redirect in a number of these cases. Right, right. So, so any question that's, that's designed to elicit the essential in information, the essential evidence, yeah. right, that would take the case from being insufficient as a matter of law to sufficient in the eyes of the, of the adjudicator, that would be a due process violation. Does that make it a case-by-case -case analysis then in terms of uh, an appellate court looking at uh, what questions are asked and what answers are given uh, by looking at a transcript? Or is it your position that just inherently, again, I use that word inherently, just because uh, the state may not be represented and the trial judge is asking all of the questions, including the pivotal ones, uh, substantively, that that inherently would be a, a due process violation for the respondent? So I, I think it's a case-by-case -case analysis. I think, I think the targeted question that, that the reviewing court is looking for is, did the trial judge ask the questions that were essential to eliciting the, the necessary evidence, the necessary testimony to satisfy the statute? That might happen in some cases. It might not. It sounds as though then as a practical matter and perhaps even as a substantive matter, whenever the state is not represented actively, then the fact that the trial court is going to be making a record as to what the outcome is going to be, then that inherently would have uh, a violation of due process if the state's attorney is not actively participating or is not present at all. Yes, I think there's absolutely a danger of the due process violation but in, is in it, any is, of those is it, is it a danger that it could happen or is it an automatic that it is happening and ultimately does happen? 
So there is a, there isn't a due process violation simply by the state not showing up or not choosing not to litigate these cases. It's the, it's the trial judge's response to the absence of the prosecuting party. So when they, <clears throat> right, what the trial judge should have done in these cases, called, right, they should have called the case, no one responded for the, for the state, no one responded for the public, <clears throat> for the, excuse me, for the private facility. The judge should have turned to defense counsel and said, are there any motions? Right, and have defense counsel make a motion to dismiss, grant the motion to dismiss, the petition and discharge the respondent. That's what should have happened in these cases. And, and from that I understand you to say that it, that it would have satisfied due process if the facility had brought a private attorney who presented the case, rather than just sat in the courtroom. Yes. And, and how does your, I understood you'd be arguing that this is a structural error, and, and I'm, how does that square with what you're telling us now, that it's a case-by-case um, evaluation of whether or not the, um, the trial court proceeded properly. In other words, if, if the problem is that no one has appeared for the state to present the case, which then puts the court in the position of being both the prosecution and the neutral fact finder, why, would, why, wasn't, why isn't that true every time the state doesn't appear? So I get what I mean by it's a case-by-case -case basis is you have to look at the record and the transcript in each, in each case. And if the trial court, right, in the absence of, of the prosecuting party, right, if, if no one is there to litigate the case for the prosecuting party, you look at, you look at the record, you look at the transcript, did they ask the questions essential to, bring, right, to, to, to satisfy the statutory criteria for commitment? So I guess that's what I mean by a case-by-case -case basis, right? You have to look at the, what actually happened in the case. But I think once, <clears throat> once that is triggered, right? I mean, I, maybe, maybe that's sort of what you were getting at, Justice, <clears throat> Justice Morgan. Like, once that is triggered, it is an, it, I mean, it is an automatic due process violation. It, it, it takes it out of the realm of, Sort of, of case by case, and any time the trial judge elicits the essential testimony, it's a due process violation and it's structural error. So how do you reconcile our uh, rule of evidence that allows trial courts to ask questions to examine witnesses um, that appears um, that you know, our rules of evidence uh, provide for that? <clears throat> so Rule 614 absolutely allows trial judges to call witnesses to ask them questions. <clears throat> but, but this court has consistently explained that that authority is intended to allow judges to ask questions to get a better understanding of a witness's testimony or to clarify a witness's statement or to bring out some sort of overlooked fact. But all the facts, all the facts are overlooked facts if there's been no evidence presented, right? There's no testimony to clarify. There's no testimony to better understand if no testimony has been presented. Who's the petitioner in these cases? The, well, the petitioner is, is 
the private facility, well, the doctor from a private facility, the, the real party in interest, right, the, 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 the prosecuting party is the state, right? The, the Duke, right, Duke or Duke's doctor is, is the nominal party. Why do you say that's a nominal party when it is the petitioner uh, who <coughs> has performed the examination and is uh, making the recommendation? <clears throat> I say they're the nominal party because everything that they're doing is by authority of the state, right? It's, it, 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 that the, the, right, the, the, the great, the, like an example is the, is, is the habeas, right? The, the warden is the nominal party in a habeas case, but yes, it's the, the state the, that's the real party in interest, the, right? The, the warden is holding the defendant by authority of the state. But, but just because there's a statute that provides for the care of these individuals under these circumstances doesn't mean that it's the state that is prosecuting. I mean, the statutes actually say if it's a state facility, the attorney general shall. But with regard to private facilities, there's no provision. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's as may. It's as the discretion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're not challenging the, the constitutionality of that statute. The, look, the decisions have consequences. The Attorney General is free to not send anyone to these cases. But that decision has consequences. But the petitioner is the, is the physician at the private facility, correct? Yes, but it, it they, doesn't matter. They filed matter. the paperwork. Yes, they did. Yes. But it doesn't matter who stands at the plaintiff's party, excuse me, at the, the plaintiff's bench, at the plaintiff's table. It doesn't matter because the due process violation is what the trial court did, not what the prosecuting party did or did not do. Um, are you familiar with other times when the district court is, or any of our courts, are presented with situations where you have a petitioner that's not the state, uh, that uh, the, the court is sitting more in a ministerial function as opposed to uh, having to, uh, you know, uh, clear uh, parties before it, if you will. No, not off the top of my head, I'm not. Uh, what about when an underage individual uh, seeks the district court's approval for uh, an abortion. Um, is that a situation where there needs to be representation? Representation for the, uh, for, the for, for, for the minor or for the state? For the, for the medical doctor who has recommended that that occur? I think that would be the best practice. So turning back to, to your question, Chief Justice Newby, about Rule 614, <clears throat> I think it's important to remember that um, Rule 614 has never been used, right? The, the state or the Supreme, or excuse me, the, the state or the Court of Appeals failed to cite there are no cases where <clears throat> the court has used Rule 614 when the party has elected to not present its case 
and the trial judge called the witness and asked all the questions necessary to satisfy the burden of proof. <clears throat> I mean, but wouldn't, just go, to say that, wouldn't that go to structural error? And if it were to do, well, I think what you are describing is, and it seems to be in response to Justice Morgan's question, it, it would be inherent. It would be structural error for the court to proceed at all under these circumstances. If the court did anything other than dismiss the charges, or excuse me, dismiss the petition and, and uh, discharge the respondent, yes. If, it, if, it res if, the, if the proceeding resulted in any sort of commitment, voluntary, you know, inpatient, outpatient, yes. And, and so just to be absolutely clear, as long as the court asks a question beyond what is your name, regardless of how it's framed, whether it's leading, open-ended, or whatever, once that point is hit, your argument is that's where the due process error, the due process violation occurs. I would articulate it, articulate it a little differently. Well, any have, any question have, have designed to elicit the essential evidence. Yes, any, I mean, as, as open-ended, as generic as they want to get, any question that prompts the doctors to, right, to, to give the testimony on the criteria, the statutory criteria for commitment, right? I mean, the, read the transcript. The doctors understood exactly what they were being asked. Is this person mentally ill, and are they dangerous to themselves or others, right? They were open-ended questions. In a, lot of, in a lot of the cases, it was, so tell me what, I, what you think I need to know about this case. But they were the ones who filed the petition. They're the ones who are seeking the court's intervention to allow them to continue treatment. I mean, it's only natural for them being the prosecuting witnesses or the, the that's not a good way to describe it, the one who is seeking the court's intervention for them to explain the court to the court why they're uh, asking for that intervention. But it's the, it's the state that has the burden of proof. They're the prosecuting party. That's what Addington held, and that's what, this, that's what the Fourth Circuit has held in Dorsey. I'm thinking of, let me get the, let me see if I can find the page. Right, the, I mean, the, the Fourth Circuit certainly isn't binding on this court. But at least, like, at least one appellate court has, has addressed the question of who's the prosecuting party in involuntary commitment cases. Addington doesn't specifically say that, but the court in Dorsey said that Addington necessarily or necessarily implied that. They're the prosecuting party. They're the ones with the, the state is the one with the burden of proof. They're the one who's supposed to call the witnesses. They're the ones who suppo is supposed to move to admit the medical records. I think an another good example of what's, <clears throat> what's going on in these cases is another Fourth Circuit case, the Carnes case. 
It was a criminal case, not a commitment case. But it addressed the use or abuse of Rule 614. And there, the, the trial judge, <clears throat> the prosecutor refused to call a witness, an essential witness. They refused to call them. The trial judge, in a jury trial, called the witness, asked them the questions necessary to put into the record the essential evidence to convict the defendant. Right? That's what we have here. Right? The Fourth Circuit said, that's, that's a due process violation. That's, a, that's an abuse under Rule 614 because if the prosecuting's party, if their, if their case would have been insufficient as a matter of law, had the, had the trial judge not intervened, that's going too far. Right? And, and that's exactly what we have here in each case. Right, the trial judge asked the subpoena doctor to come to the witness stand to testify. The judge asked them all the questions, every iota of evidence that supported commitment was elicited by the trial judge. Maybe the state should have been the one who called the witnesses. I think so. Maybe it should have been Duke. Maybe the doctor could have shown up pro se and done it. But the trial, like the, the one person who cannot be the presenter of evidence is the trial judge. Right? Does it who, matter who, for purposes of your analysis whether it's the state or Duke that, that calls or asks witnesses questions? No, absolutely not. The spotlight on, in this case is not on the plaintiff's chair or the petitioner's chair. It's on the bench. What did the trial judge do? What did the trial judge do in response to the prosecuting party not litigating the case? One of the things that I want to circle back to <clears throat> is what I, what I think the motivation is in these cases that the, that the trial, <clears throat> the motivation for the trial judges. And I think Judge Doretta Walker summed it up best. And I'm, and I'm quoting in page four and five from the transcript, <clears throat> excuse me, in NRACG, where there's been a motion to dismiss by defense counsel and here's Judge Walker's response. So you would suggest we have, we have everything in limbo and do nothing because it sounds like the DA's office is refusing to do anything and it sounds like the Attorney General's office is refusing to do anything. So you're suggesting we do nothing and not have these cases at all as a result of people failing to do their duty. And here's the money quote. I'm not gonna do that. We will do what we can but this court is not going to not do what the statute says needs to be done. And I think that quote suggests that Judge Walker, like the other judges, was she was motivated by a desire to ensure that justice was done, right? That 
that the people who came into her courtroom were given the treatment that she believed they needed. But as we know from Enray Galt, no matter how sympathetic Judge Walker's position is, judicial paternalism has no place in commitment hearings. IVC hearings, commitment hearings, are not best interest hearings. The Court of Appeals got that wrong, and the state does not attempt to defend that position. IVC hearings are adversarial hearings where a judge's motivation to get to the truth or to get to a fair outcome has no place. It shouldn't come into play. And our adversarial system, within that system, it's not the trial judge's role to ensure that the case for commitment is presented against each and every respondent. What's your response to the case law that represents that these kinds of cases are inquisitorial hearings? I know of no case law that, that says, or no binding case law that, that says uh, involuntary commitments are, are inquisitorial. Um, and any case law that, that, would, that held that would be in clear violation of Vitek and Fouché and other Supreme Court cases that clearly say that involuntary commitment cases must be adversarial to comply with, with due process. Well, by the United States Supreme Court says adversarial, there is a line of thought, however, that does say inquisitorial uh, matters uh, are more uh, appropriate in terms of how these cases are regarded. What's your response to that? My response to that is those cases are incompatible with, with the United States Supreme Court jurisprudence and are, and are wrong. This court said in Viar, it's not the role of the appellate courts to create an appeal for an appellant. These cases are no different than Viar. The court's intervention just happened at the trial level instead of at the appellate level. If the court of appeals can't intervene to raise a winning argument for a defaulting appellant, the trial court can't intervene to present the case for an absentee party. Is, is the heart of the issue that the, the, the that there's a burden of proof to be presented by the petitioning party and that they don't have anybody there to do that? I mean, is that, that appears to be why the trial court decides to step in. Right. And I guess, can you envision a situation where there's a hearing about something, I guess best interest may be the kind of issue that you were talking about, where nobody has a particular burden of proof to present evidence and move forward. There's just a question that the trial court has a duty to look at. Sure, I'm thinking of um, types of cases that come, come up under chapter 7B, right, um, custody, or um, 
or other types of cases where the statute specifically says, right, there's, there's some sort of dispositional hearing or proceeding where the court is supposed to consider the best interest of the child or the best interest of, of, of whomever. Right, that happens all the time at the TPR dispositional yes. phase. Yes, and so, and so anybody with evidence can get up there, right? It's, it's no evidence should be withheld. But that's, but, right, that's not what we have here, right? The, the statute doesn't, chapter 122C doesn't ask for a best interest hearing in this case. And if it did, it would be unconstitutional. Counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. Ah, then, um, just make sure. Um, the last thing I want to say, and then I will sit down, is uh, Justice Earls, you, you mentioned structural error. That's, that's what I'm arguing this, these errors are. That, that would require automatic reversal. But even if it's reviewed under harmless error, um, the state hasn't argued in their brief that, uh, that, the, that the error is harmless. So that's a fatal problem for the state. But even if you did ignore that problem and look at the evidence, it's still not harmless. And with that, I will save my 49 seconds. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court. My name is Jim Doggett, and I represent the state. In these cases, six respondents asked this court to vacate the orders that committed them temporarily for treatment of mental illness. These respondents were only committed after a magistrate, two different medical professionals, and a district court all separately concluded that commitment was warranted. And the district court only reached that conclusion after holding a hearing where respondents were entitled to be represented by counsel and where they had the opportunity and the right to confront any witnesses who testified in favor of commitment. Despite all these procedural protections, they claimed that the hearings below denied them due process. They do so on the basis of a novel argument, a novel argument that our Court of Appeals first rejected 40 years ago, uh, actually 39 years ago, in a decision that has been good law in this state ever since, and that has structured expectations about how these proceedings should go forward. The specific arguments that respondents make is that the fact that these uh, district court judges um, um, went forward with commitment proceedings and committed them on the basis of testimony from doctors when no counsel appeared to advocate for a commitment denied them their due process right to an impartial tribunal. That novel argument, which links the impartiality of judges. Well, you, you don't deny, do you, that the respondents in these cases have a right to a neutral decision maker, the, the issue is what is a neutral decision maker, at least the way I understand it. Is that an approach that you agree with or disagree with? Yes, that's exactly correct. There, no one so what, so what, in, what in your view is a neutral decision maker? Well, a neutral decision maker, um, well, we know for a couple of reasons that, um, that what happened below here did not deny anyone a right to a neutral decision maker. And that's first 
because the U.S. Supreme Court in a number of cases has addressed what processes do in these proceedings, and it's never held that counsel has to appear to advocate for a commitment. Instead, it's endorsed procedures that create an active role for a trial court in hearing these cases. Um, and second as well, you know, they argue that whenever counsel does not uh, appear, a judge necessarily takes on a prosecutorial role, but that argument is simply foreclosed by precedent. And the final point, you know, they also argue that error supposedly happened below because the trial court supposedly satisfied the burden to show the commitment was needed. But again, um, again, that argument fails as well for reasons similar. Is, is there something that a trial court could do that in the state's view would cross the line over from being a neutral to a I guess partial is the word that's coming to the tip of my tongue, a partial decision maker, and if so, what is it? Absolutely. So in, so in the McGrath case that they rely on heavily, for example, the Supreme Court has held that if a statute or regulation affirmatively imposes a requirement on a court to act as counsel for the government, that results in denial of due process. And there are clearly situations, for example, where even in the absence of a statute, a judge could cross the line. For example, this court's precedent has noticed that if you start to impeach witnesses and start to act as an advocate, that establishes a due process violation. Or if you make statements that indicate such a high degree of hostility towards one party that it indicates you've lost your impartiality, then that could be a situation as well. What, what, what about posing questions that ask for an answer concerning what amounts to the definitive legal test that's at issue in the proceeding? I mean, that happened in a couple of these cases on redirect. Does that have any implications for what the state views as a neutral decision maker? Uh, no, I don't think that would cross over the line. And also, I, I want to be clear. Okay. I think why, I don't just just to be just so I'll understand your argument. Why not? Well, I, I think even they would say that it's it's okay, or it it's not a dispositive issue here, whether or not questions like that be be asked. Because I understand their argument. They've said. Well, I mean, as their, their, their argument seems to be once you go beyond asking what somebody's name is, that's a due process violation. I'm understanding you to say it takes a lot more than that, but there is a possibility that there could be one under some sets of circumstances, and I'm just trying to understand where you think that line is. I think I know where they think it is. Right, yeah, I think if a statute impose, affirmatively imposed an obligation to act as an, advocate, as an advocate for one side, that would go over the line. And if you made a statement that was so partisan towards one side or the other, other that, that revealed that you had lost your impartiality, that would do it, but nothing that happened in these cases crossed over the line. Um, and I, I don't even see their argument as being that any of the questions that were specifically asked are even dispositive for the analysis here, because they're arguing that once you get into a hearing and someone doesn't respond to counsel not being present by doing anything more than just dismissing the case, you've got a due process violation. Um, so that's, I think, that's, I think where, where they see the line and we see the line as being far, far removed from that in terms of what due process uh, permits. And one way we know that this is the case is that the U.S. Supreme Court has already rejected this argument. In the Perales case that we cite, um, there the court was confronted with a hearing process where no counsel appeared to advocate for the government. And um, a counsel, uh, an attorney made the same argument, due process argument that's being made here, that um, that necessarily fo forced um, the adjudicator in that case to take on the government's burden of showing that it was entitled to relief. Um, so we have a case that squarely presents the issue before the court right here, and it defeats their claim. Now, they've, they've argued that that case is not controlling here because it involved a non-adversarial proceeding. But, um, you know, 
that's not actually what the court held. The court didn't hold in Perales, well, this is a non-adversarial proceeding. We don't really care about impartiality here. We're, we're, willing to we're, we're willing to tolerate an impartial judge in these proceedings that are non-adversarial in nature. The court instead held, no, because you know, just because you have a hearing process uh, where the government is not represented, that doesn't automatically establish a due process violation. So Perales um, is not so limited as, as, the, as, as they've suggested in, in their reply brief. But so, they, they also point to Sung, where the Supreme Court said that you can't have, um, that's, that you do have to have a separation between, if you have an adversarial process, in, this, in Sung it's the immigration process, but that you can't have the same party being the prosecutor seeking to deport someone and the judge deciding whether or not they should be deported. So the Supreme Court, in that context, said you, you can't have the same, the judge can't play both roles. That's correct, but, but again, um, in McGrath, um, actually the, stat, the, the regulations are specifically required um, the government to cross-examine witnesses on behalf of the government, on behalf of the government. And there's no, require, there's no similar requirement in, um, in Perales, and there's similarly no requirement here under Chapter 122C that, uh, makes the judge take on the government's role. But in terms of the due process analysis, um, isn't, what isn't what matters what actually happened? Um, they're not challenging the statutory scheme here. Uh, and uh, so shouldn't we be looking at what actually happened in the trial court to determine whether due process was satisfied? Well, again, I, I don't think they've asked you to look at what actually happens in the trial court. They say in the abstract, whenever um, the state or private facility exercise their discretion not to appear through counsel, and the case is not automatically dismissed, that's a due process violation. Now, I understand they've styled it as being an as-applied challenge, but it's really a facial challenge, which is to say that this discretion that the General Assembly has said the state, cannot, uh, the state can exercise can never be exercised without receiving a dismissal. Well the, well, the statute speaks to when the Attorney General must or may um, provide counsel, but that doesn't necessarily address what the U.S. Constitution requires in terms of due process. Yes, that's, that's absolutely correct. And so I want to understand the state's position in terms of, in the actual hearing, how a trial judge can both wear the hat of the person presenting the evidence and the person deciding um, whether to believe the evidence and what weight to give to the evidence, and in particular, um, in, in some of the questions that were asked here, uh, if, the, if the trial judge asks the witness, um, do you think that this person is a danger to themselves? Uh, and the um, defense or the counsel for the um, respondent wants to object to that question on the grounds that it calls for a conclusion and proper foundation hasn't been laid, does the, how does the judge then respond to an objection? Do they take off their hat as questioner and say, okay, you're right, I asked an improper question. How does the judge uh, carry out both those roles? Well, I think that, that hypothetical really isn't an issue because again, they, that's not their case. They're saying that as soon as you don't dismiss a case, there's a due process violation. Right, but they're saying it's a violation because you can't have one person be both presenting the evidence and weighing and evaluating the evidence. Well, I think that might be a good argument if the U.S. Supreme Court had not repeatedly rejected it. In Perales, it rejected that argument, and it also did so in the context of adversarial proceedings, too. Um, for example, like we point out in the brief, in parole and probation revocation proceedings there, no counsel appears typically on behalf of the state to, to, to advocate in, in, uh, for, a, for a particular <clears throat> position. 
And that, the Supreme Court has indicated, doesn't violate due process. And they've also held that commitment proceedings in the VTEC case also should be similar to those proceedings. So the U.S. Supreme Court has already implicitly recognized that counsel doesn't need to appear for the state to satisfy due process. Well, but the, the, the hypothetical that I raise, I don't think is that far divorced from the facts that we have in some of these cases. Um, so if, if a um, judge is trying to inter introduce a doctor's report, the other side is objecting to the same judge who's trying to introduce the report. So this, this problem of putting one person, however well-meaning and however committed they are to doing the best job they can, putting them in an impossible situation where they both have to decide what evidence should be presented to meet the statutory uh, standard and they have to rule on, on any objections that the other side might want to make. Well, I think, I mean, that might be a compelling hypothetical had it not been rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. And not only rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest courts of other states have also rejected that argument. For example, we point out that the Washington Supreme Court has dealt with a situation that's very similar to this. And it's rec it, it recognized that hypothetical, and it said, you know, that, that just does not suffice to establish a due process violation. I mean, effectively, their argument is that as soon as, as a judge, um, instead of counsel, calls a witness to the stand and asks that, that witness, what happened? That's due process violation. And it's hard to think of an argument that would, be more, that would elevate form more over substance than that argument. But that's not what due process requires. Due process requires that we focus on substance and not form. Um, so, so, in, so in your view, you would, to go back to the discussion that we had a minute ago, in your view, in order to evaluate whether there was a due process violation, you'd have to look at the specific conduct in which the trial court engaged in the particular hearing that's under consideration and then make a determination based on that conduct as to whether the trial court did or did not act as an impartial decision maker? Absolutely, and that's consistent with this court's precedence when it's discussed. Do, do, you, do you agree with your colleagues that the Court of Appeals, to the extent that they characterize these, are, these as inquisitorial proceedings, uh, misspoke? Yes, that's, that's correct. I mean, you, don't, you, don't dispute them, you don't dispute them that these are, in fact, adversarial proceedings, involuntary commitment proceedings? Oh, absolutely. These are adversarial in the U.S. Supreme Court. In cases like VTEC, for example, where the court recognized that counsel didn't need to appear, did hold that those proceedings have to be adversarial. But again, I'd like to point out that this is not really a concession that I'm making. They're making, I mean, they've, they've argued as well that these hearings did not lose their adversarial character merely because counsel did not appear. And that's not surprising because again, the U.S. Supreme Court in cases like VTEC and Gagnon have repeatedly characterized hearings as being adversarial, even in a context in which counsel does not appear to advocate for the state's interest. So it's your position in recognizing that these are adversarial hearings that the trial court can still nonetheless without the state's attorney or some representative of a private hospital actively appearing can nonetheless still wear the dual hat of being both the prosecutor as well as the neutral fact finder? No, there's no dual hats that are being worn here. But the fact is that adversarial proceedings does not necessarily require counsel to appear. Because again, we have a unique statutory structure here in North Carolina that allows counsel not to appear. And here, um, uh, Duke, through its doctors, uh, filed a petition for involuntary commitment. The statutes say that you know counsel doesn't necessarily have to appear. 
but they did provide a witness to appear. And then the witness made the case from the stand about, about why commitment was necessary. And then the respondents in these cases had a chance through their counsel to confront those witnesses and then make a closing argument and make a legal argument about why commitment was unnecessary. And so that was clearly an adversary proceeding, especially since the Supreme Court has recognized that what makes a proceeding adversarial is not whether or not counsel appears or not. I don't want to gloss over what you just said. You said that the, the, the doctor made the case. The doctor made the case by virtue of responding to questions that were posed by the, the trial court. Uh, at, at what point does the, the trial court uh, have a duty to make the record uh, on a case that's called, but on the other hand, uh, resist crossing the line as to uh, not only substantively violating due process, but also procedurally violating due process in terms of handling matters as the trial court is in a position at that point to do? Well, I think this, this court has provided guidance on these issues for years in its jurisprudence with respect to Rule 614, that it's, uh, a trial judge should not, um, for example, become an advocate by impeaching a witness, but otherwise courts have wide discretion to question witnesses, especially when there's no jury present um, that, could be, uh, that, that, that could be prejudiced uh, by any judicial questioning. And I think it's also something to, um, that point provides me an, uh, an opportunity to point out something else that, you know, it's, if, if, if respondents were to um, prevail here, it's not all clear this would be good for respondents. As, as Judge Dillon noted in his, in his concurrence below, Trial courts necessarily have to be more restrained in their questioning because of the restraints of due process. And that wouldn't necessarily be true if, if counsel for the state or for the facility had to appear. They could be more aggressive in their questioning. And so it's very likely that if they won, more respondents would be committed. And I want to be clear, that result would be very burdensome for the state and for private facilities because it would require them to spend funds that could otherwise be spent on treating patients to hire lawyers. It might be a good result for lawyers to require lawyers to, to, to appear in these proceedings, but it, might, it certainly might not be um, for people facing commitment because they would just be more likely to face commitment because counsel would, counsel would eventually appear. Are appellate courts to proceed on a case-by-case -case analysis in these kinds of matters? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's, it's something that, um, you know, I, I, would, I would agree with respondents that it's necessary to look at, at, the, at the transcript in these cases to see if someone crossed over the line. But we just diverged enormously on where the specific line is um, in these cases. So this is, not, this is not a bright line aspect, but it's a matter of an appellate court looking at the trial judge's activity in terms of the interaction with those that are making the presentation for the state or the private hospital, not represented by counsel, and then determining whether or not the trial court overstepped right exactly but questions like that were asked here for example like um you know called you know is you know is the doctor from duke here i call the doctor from duke what do you want me to know it's hard to see how just asking those questions alone so taints the judicial mind that it can't make an honest decision in the case i mean it's, it's just a matter of form uh over substance about who calls a witness and who asks the question and that's the opposite of what due process is about. So it actually, it, it absolutely is, is an analysis that needs to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. But um, we simply disagree with their, their um, really restrictive approach that assumes 
that judges are totally incapable of maintaining their partiality in the question where they do as little as call a witness to the stand um, um, and then say, what do you want me to know? You were asked about uh, objections uh, and how a court might deal with that. That's actually covered in Rule 614, isn't it? Uh, subsection C talks about that no objections are necessary when the court asks a question and that those are uh, automatically preserved. Yes. Thank you, Justice. Uh, Chief. Thank you, Chief Justice Bibby. That's that's absolutely correct. Um, I'd like to address just a few, you know, a few quick points. Um, in addition, um, you know, there's been some equivocation in their briefing and here today at argument about whether or not the state has to appear at these at these proceedings in order to satisfy the burden to show the commitment is necessary. But on the opening page of their uh, opening brief, they say that's not the issue in this case. And that the issue here is not whether or not Duke has to appear or whether or not the state has to appear through counsel. It's simply whether counsel appears. So that, that may be an interesting question, but it's not a question that's before this court today. And I think even in argument, they've, um, they've acknowledged that point as well. Um, they've also referenced the Carnes case in the Fourth Circuit as being, as being helpful uh, to look at the due process issues in this case. But I would disagree about that. I mean, the, you know, the way they characterize the Carnes case is true insofar as what one, one opinion in that case did hold. Um, but um, Carnes is actually not, it's actually a decision of a fractured Fourth Circuit panel. Um, there was a dissent in that case. There was also a concurrence. And the concurring opinion actually does not join the constitutional reasoning of what was ostensibly the majority opinion in that case. And given that weak foundation, it's important to note that the Fourth Circuit has only cited that case twice, never for the proposition that's, that for which it's being advanced here, um, and only and when it's been cited, it's only been cited in, in um, unpublished opinions. And also note it's not even clear that um, in the Fourth Circuit um, that the, the one lone opinion that reached these conclusions is good law because it was actually decided on the basis of dicta. There were two alternate holdings that the court reached, so it's probably dicta. Um, and I'd also note that the Fourth Circuit in that case, when it held that um, just by asking, a, just by calling a witness that um, the prosecution not, had not called, that that establishes a due process violation, um, the court also didn't cite any precedent. You know, it was essentially one judge's musings without looking at any U.S. Supreme Court precedent. So I would say that the Carnes case is not very, I mean, it certainly, it can be persuasive authority, that one opinion, and this court should carefully consider it, but it's not very strong uh, uh, persuasive authority, and it's also possibly not even binding in the Fourth Circuit. So if we decide that in this case it, there is no due process problem with the judge both presenting the evidence and uh, being the finder of fact on the evidence, how far does that principle go? Does that mean in criminal cases it's fine to proceed even if the state doesn't appear, as has happened in some other states apparently? No, I, I, don't, think that, I don't think that issue is implicated here at all, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, the North Carolina Constitution requires district attorneys to represent the state in criminal prosecutions, or at least to delegate that authority to someone else. And also, by statute, this is less important, they also have calendaring authority. Um, so anything this court says here would not control in that circumstance. And here we have a very different circumstances compared to the North Carolina Constitution that says district attorneys have to represent the state, and, sta and the AG also has inherent authority to represent uh, the state on appeal. Um, here we have a statute where has the, uh, the General Assembly has done precisely the opposite. It's been it's been well known since 1983, since Perkins was decided, that 
uh, chapter 122C does not create or creates the possibility that counsel might not appear in cases like these. And the General Assembly, rather than amending the statute after 1983 to say, no, 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 counsel has to appear, they had done the opposite. They instead amended the statute in 1986 to say, to make it cl crystal clear that the state doesn't have to appear in these proceedings. So, so I understand what the statutes say, but we are here on a question of the U.S. constitutional due process guarantee. And my question for you is, if it is important enough that in the U.S. Constitution, in our state constitution, we say that when you're going to take someone's liberty away from them in a criminal prosecution, um, you have to have a fully adversarial process where the state is represented and you have a neutral fact finder who can rule on evidentiary objections as they come in. If, the, if that's important enough in the criminal context, why shouldn't it equally be important in this context where you're also taking people's liberty away that has consequences for them for the rest of their lives? Well, I, I, again, I, I, my, my response would just be that the criminal uh, issue doesn't come up because of the different way that our Constitution and statutes structure that stuff. But I also think, importantly, that even in criminal proceedings, um, uh, practically speaking, once you get, once a case rises to a certain level of complexity, it would just be impossible for the state to uh, Obtain a uh, to attain a, a, a criminal conviction. But again, you know, uh, because you have to pull multiple uh, witnesses, there are strategic decisions that need to be made. Whereas here in these cases, I mean, sometimes there can be very complicated commitment proceedings. But here in these cases, all the district court judge had to do was call a witness and say, tell me what you want me to know. And in many of these cases, many of these cases were over after 20 minutes. And so there's, the due process clause imposes a structural check already to make sure that in criminal proceedings, for example, you just wouldn't end up with a situation in a very serious criminal case where something like this would happen, I think. Do you agree with the Court of Appeals analogy that we should look at these kinds of cases in the same manner in which a best interest analysis is conducted in a child custody case? I, well, these are adversarial proceedings. Uh, and as a result, um, uh, uh, you know, witnesses have to appear to satisfy the burden. Um, so this is not an this is not an this is not an inquisitorial proceeding. This is a this is a adversary proceeding where a burden has to be satisfied to their witness. But again, just because this is an adversary proceeding, does not mean that counsel needs to appear. So, for example, in the parole and probation context, for example, and in the involuntary commitment context, as the U.S. Supreme Court held in Vitek, it's permissible for a burden to be satisfied through a testifying witness, which is exactly the procedure that happened below where a, a witness appeared um, and, uh, and uh, we had a full adversary proceeding, even though counsel did not specifically appear to advocate for commitment. But no, this, absolutely these have to be adversarial proceedings. Yeah, you've talked about a case-by-case -case analysis and of course best interest tests are done in a case-by-case -case analysis as to the dynamics of what's happening in a family situation. So again, my question was, uh, should we employ that same type of analysis since the Court of Appeals employed that analysis and, of course, the state is seeking to uh, uphold the Court of Appeals' opinion? Are you wed to that analysis? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct, that there, there should be a case-by-case -case analysis on the due process issue. But to the extent you're asking about in terms of reviewing the substantive merits of whether or not commitment was appropriate, that's an issue that's probably better addressed by my colleagues who will be arguing later today about how, like how to assess when um, uh, um, the need for commitment is really justified in terms of the merits of what a particular case shows. 
But yeah, but absolutely, with respect to due process, it is a, it is a case by case analysis, and that's not anything that's new, because in in case law under um, Rule six fourteen, that's what this court has done. It is it is commonly going back, you know, literally decades, looked at a transcript, seen have we reached a situation where a judge has stepped over the line, and taken on um, and, and taken on the burden of advocacy by impeaching witnesses or demonstrating considerable hostility to a party. And that's just not what we have here. There's nothing like that in the record. And again, their argument is in, what, I, what I think respondents are trying to do here is not, um, is not have this court um, here say that, um, you know, they don't really want that careful analysis. What they want is, is a bright line rule that says as soon as a judge simply asks, um, simply calls a witness, and ask the witness to say, you know, what do you want me, or, or ask, what do you want me to know? That's a due process violation. So I, so I, so I think certainly a case-by-case -case analysis is appropriate, but they, I, I don't think that's the, that's the approach that they would suggest. Um, unless there are any uh, further questions, um, the state would respectfully request that this court affirm the Court of Appeals and its affirmance of 39-year-old Court of Appeals precedent and leave undisturbed uh, the commitment orders below. Thank you very much. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. I've got 49 seconds, so I'll, I'll be brief. <clears throat> the state doesn't say anything today as different than what it said in its responsive brief. My reply brief, I reject all of these arguments and explain why they don't hold water. But I do have a couple of points I'd like to make. The state is absolutely desperate to make this case to be about whether it showed up at, the, at these commitment hearings. It is, this case is not about whether the state showed up. It's about the trial court's response when they didn't show up. State also mentions that the questions that the trial court asked in these cases didn't show any actual bias or hostility. That's not the test. Toomey says that due process is violated by any judicial procedure that offers a temptation, a possible temptation, to not hold the balance nice, clear, and true. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone.